The following sermon was delivered on March 14th, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Organizing pastor Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled The Disciplines of the Godly Minister on 1 Timothy 4, 6-11. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, I'm sure we all would agree that our day and age is a time that is very preoccupied with health. Health foods and supplements and uh, working out and exercise. Uh, many of us are much more careful today about uh, what we eat than we were even uh, a few years ago. And even some of us are more careful about what we do with our bodies in terms of exercising. And those things are good. But as you think about your concern for your body and eating well and your body and exercising, how does that relate to your concern about your soul, about the inner being, about uh, your Christian man, woman, boy, or girl? How well do you eat? And how well do you discipline? You see, we can get really preoccupied with the physical part of our lives and neglect greatly the spiritual part with respect to what we eat and how we Exercise, And that's really what Paul is addressing here in our text, particularly for the man of God, for the minister. For those of you who are ministers, those of you who will be preparing for the ministry, he speaks more directly to us. But as you'll see, he actually will speak to all of us as the people of God. So where are we in Timothy? Uh, we last week began this section in chapter 4 that Paul begins now to instruct the minister about his conduct within the congregation. So we move from the first chapter that deals with uh, the purpose, a minor purpose of the book to do with the false teaching. He sets forth the beauty and glory of the gospel. Chapters 2 and 3 deal with the structuring of the church. And now in chapter 4, after having declared that glorious mystery of the incarnation, he first warns against the ascetic legalism that some people in Ephesus were teaching and following after. Uh, setting over against it the doctrine of Christian liberty, both liberty of conscience, but also how we must exercise that liberty according to the word of God with uh, a seriousness and a sobriety and a care. That kind of lays the foundation for what he says now. For you'll notice he says, in pointing out these things. And so he's moving now from this discussion of uh, legalism and liberty to the conduct of the minister in teaching these and other things. And what I want to show you is, is that the godly minister who's nurtured in the word and practices godliness with endurance will be equipped to nurture the congregation. A godly minister who is nurtured in the word and practices godliness will, with endurance, be equipped to nurture the congregation. So we consider the godly minister must be well-nourished, he must be disciplined, and he must practice endurance. So in uh, verses 6 and 7 through 7a, we see that the godly minister must be well-nurtured. He must feed well. He must feed on good, healthy food and not junk food. And pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished 
on the words of faith and of sound doctrine, which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. He begins pointing out the general responsibility of the gospel minister. Notice the connections I said in pointing out these things to the brethren, now within the midst of the congregation, gathered with the people of God, as the minister is teaching, as the minister is refuting false doctrine, as the minister is seeking to instruct them in right doctrine, he must be very careful about how he feeds himself. Now he points out that the minister is in fact a steward of the gospel. You'll see here that uh, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, the head of the church, the anointed prophet, priest, and king, God incarnate, our Savior, is the one who calls men to the gospel ministry. As such, a man is a servant of Christ Jesus, one who gives an answer, a steward, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 4.1, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's how Paul thought about himself. That's how every gospel minister needs to think about himself. We're stewards. We've been entrusted with a message. We're heralds of the gospel. We are ambassadors. We don't have the privilege to go off another direction, to deal with other issues. There might be issues of truth or of propriety or probity or, or ethics or whatever. But we have no right to depart from the message of Christ Jesus. Nor may we tamper with that message. The good servant is going to give an answer for how he handles this message. And it's very important for you, you men who are ministers, you men who are preparing for the ministry, to be committed, to be tethered to the Word of God. Never to go to the right or the left, but never to hold back either. This is one of the reasons that here we basically will be preaching through books of the Bible. When we don't, if it's an ad hoc message for particular occasions or short series such as uh, uh, Zach might be doing, well, in that case, it's still going to be textual. But primarily we preach through the Bible because amongst other things, what that does for you is guarantee that you hear the whole counsel of God. You don't hear our hobby horses. You hear that which the king of the church has given to us to give to you, whether it is easy for us or not, whether it's pleasant for you or not. We're stewards, and as stewards we must give an answer to the Lord of the church and deliver his message to you. Now that's a draining task. You understand that if you've taught Sunday school, or you men that are preparing, and those of us that preach. It is difficult to be in the Word to such an extent that we're able to teach sound doctrine and, and to refute, as Paul has just pointed out. And thus we must take very good care of our own spiritual being. So what Paul is doing here is that because we're stewards, in this process of pointing out these things to the church, we must be nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine, which you've been following. That's the positive. The negative, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. The word nourished is to be reared up and trained. Particularly here, the nuance is, is to be feeding on the Word of God. But it's not for your congregation. It's for yourself. To feed your own soul. 
to be communing with God in His Word, to be led by the Spirit into the green pastures of God's Word, to be brought there by God and to feed on His Word. And it's absolutely necessary that you do that. Notice how it's described, the Word of the truth. This is the Word of God that's been revealed to us and given to us in the Scriptures. As Paul will say later, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God, primarily at that point the minister, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Of course, secondarily it will apply to the rest of us as well. But the man of God must be nourished, nurtured in the word of truth. But also in the summary of that word of truth. He adds that second phrase and of the sound doctrine. Now, the word sound means that which is morally good and upright. It's not the same word he uses earlier for that which is healthy and sound in that way, but that which is morally good. And once again, he's referring now to the summaries of the Word of God. You remember that uh, even as Paul wrote Timothy, there would yet have been letters of Scripture to have been written to be brought together uh, for the churches to have. And there were these apostolic summaries of God's truth. Paul describes them um, as 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. You know there are bad traditions in the church. We talked about this already. Those man-made traditions that carry on from generation to generation. But the concept of tradition is not bad. It is a biblical concept. And the traditions are those apostolic teachings, he says, either received by word of mouth or in written form. This is one of our foundational uh, um, statements for having creeds and confessions, these summaries of Christian truths are absolutely essential. So Paul is saying you're to be nourished by the word of God, you're to feed on it, and you're to do so in an orthodox framework. It's not willy-nilly off here and over there. No, we sometimes confuse uh, sola scriptura with solo scriptura. Uh, sola scriptura means the word of God is our only little faith and practice. But the word of God was given to the church, well, initially 4,000 years ago and completed 2,000 years ago. And the church has been wrestling with those great truths of scripture throughout the millennia. And has put together creeds and confessions that summarize the orthodox truth. And we are to do our biblical study and exegesis in terms of the pattern of sound doctrine, as Paul will call it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. The apostolic traditions that have been carried over now into the church in these uh, formularies. And so we are to be in the word personally feeding ourselves. We're to do so with the care that we are in the Word systematically. We're in the Word consistently with the received truths of the church. The contrast, then, is you want to avoid at all costs these fables. Remember, one of the things going on in Ephesus were these other false teachers who were following this uh, Jewish custom of taking genealogies and making up interesting stories. And take, pull a name out and make up a story about that person. And that's what Paul calls here, have nothing to do with worldly fables, but not of God, 
They're of the world, and ultimately of Satan and the demons, as we saw last week, fit only for old women. Now, that's a bit pejorative, perhaps, but we know that culturally, we've all heard the concept of old wives' fables, that oftentimes, very old women are very gullible and are very gossipy, and they tend to repeat these things, and obviously that was a problem in Ephesus that Paul was dealing with there. And people were much more interested in the, the fables and the myths that were perpetrated and carried out from the house to house than they were the word of God. And he says you must reject those things. And so again, as we are nourished, we must be careful not to eat junk food, okay? We must eat good food. We must eat God's food. Not the junk food of Satan, those doctrines of demons and, and devils and Satans and uh, deceitful hypocrites. You know, we are to eat well. So, it's very important for those of us who are ministering, we're in the Word all the time. But if we're not in the Word for ourselves, and this is also true for you men that are preparing for the ministry, if we're not in the Word for ourselves, if we are relying on our sermon preparation, or our class preparation, or our studies, then we are going to wither up we're going to perish because we will have not fed our souls. It's a great temptation for any of us who uh, are dealing with the Word of God to let our preparation for dealing with the Word of God take place of the nourishment of our souls. And then you cannot do that. It will be absolutely spiritually ineffective. And more than likely, you'll dry up on the vine as well. But you see how it's true for all of us? Every one of you needs to be daily being nourished by the Word of God. In a systematic manner. Working through scriptures. Now we who are ministers should read through the Bible annually at least once. But every Christian needs to be reading through the Bible regularly. So that over some period of time, you have read through the Bible consistently, and then you start over again. We must nourish ourselves in the Word of God. There's also a warning here. Don't read the junk. Some of us have to read error. Uh, but don't read error unless you're in a position that you have to, you have to be a defender of that particular truth. Uh, life's too short to read bad books and do other things as well. Uh, and so be very careful. Because error is poisonous. And Satan is deceitful. We're just much better off to devote ourselves. And so you should be in the Word. You should be in our confession and catechisms in a systematic and regular way. And then you should be adding to your diet good Christian literature of sound theology and Christian biography and, and devotional works so that our souls will grow and prosper. So the minister must be well-nourished, but so must every Christian, every boy, every girl. As I've said to you young folks before, now is the time to develop those habits. More quickly, a lot of Christian life is habit. That's not wrong. It's just like brushing your teeth, you know? It's not a bad thing to brush your teeth. It's not a bad thing to develop these, where we're moving now, the disciplines of Bible reading. It's a meditating, communing with God in His Word. 
And so the minister and those to whom he ministers must be nurtured in the Word of God. You see, it's particularly true also for those of you who are heads of household. You've got a little church, too, that you need to be ministering to. So, must be um, well-nourished. Secondly, it must be disciplined. This is the next section, 7b uh, through 9. On the other hand, so you see he's moving on now. So on the one hand, be nourished, eat well. On the other hand, discipline yourself. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That second half of verse 7. So the second thing he does is talk about discipline. Now the word used here for discipline means to rear or to train. Uh, excuse me, that's the first word. The word here for discipline is the word for a gymnast and for gymnasium. And the word itself implies rigorous, hard work, repetition. No pain, no gain. To be committed to the difficult pursuit of what? Of godliness. Godliness. What is godliness? It is to be godlike. It is to have the image of Christ shaped in you so that you grow in conformity to that image of Christ. And Paul is saying that will only come as a consequence of disciplining yourselves, which would lead to the practice then of spiritual Discipline. Larger Catechism 154. What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his church the benefits of his mediation are all his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for their salvation. So if you think about discipline... You've heard, seen books, spiritual disciplines. That's what we're talking about. It's the practice of the means of grace. Now, the means of grace are summarized particularly as the word prayer and sacraments. We also know that there are other um, means that God uses. So tithing, keeping the Lord's Day, spiritual conversation, fasting, obviously corporate worship. Uh, these are all things that God does, and we're to discipline ourselves in the use of of these things privately in the word and prayer um, with our families and of course in corporate worship we know that uh, corporate worship is the chief means of grace and preaching in is the primary means of grace and then enforced with the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism this is what Paul means by discipline yourself and you see, the Christian life is a matter of discipline. I was reading this morning, Proverbs chapter 4. And uh, this has always been a passage that has just really um, in, reinforced in me this whole idea of spiritual discipline. Uh, beginning with verse 20, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them, you see there's effort going on here. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are life to those who find them, health to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Now notice, we got the heart. Then put away from you a deceitful mouth. Put 
devious speech far from you. There's the mouth. Let your eyes look directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. There are eyes. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. You see, these are all commandments. Watch over the heart. Uh, direct the eyes, direct the mouth, direct the feet. These are acts of Christian discipline. These are the things that we do in the context of practicing the means of grace that we might grow in godliness. You will not grow in godliness if you do not practice Christian discipline. Now to help us with this, Paul gives us um, motivation. In verse 8 he says, For bodily discipline is only a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now he's not doing away with the usefulness of bodily discipline. He does say that it has some use to it. All he's looking for is a balance here. But uh, again, in working with uh, ministers and ministerial students, I always want to remind you that you must have a physical discipline as well. I don't know what we'll do here, but when I had interns in uh, Houston and in Escondido, I actually required an exercise program from those men. Because you sit at a desk, your, your work is sedentary, and you need that discipline of physical discipline to keep your health and to be able to do your job well. And so there is some profit. But what Paul is doing, that that's kind of the foil, the, the background, the backdrop for pointing out the superiority of spiritual discipline. So although we could say with a concession, there is a little profit in bodily discipline, but godliness, in other words, godly discipline is profitable for all things. All things in this life, he says, holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, when he talks about all things in this life, he's talking both about spiritual things but also physical things. That godliness, the disciplines unto godliness are things that God blesses in shaping us in his image which we desperately want, and so we do guard over our hearts, as we just read, and seek to um, feed and uh, use the, the means of grace that God has given to us so that we will grow in conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we will be useful as ministers, as husbands, as wives, whatever our callings are in life, uh, this discipline, spiritual discipline, is going to be useful, profitable in the promotion of godliness, which is profitable for all things, both in this life and the life to come. But it also makes us, overall, a, a more prosperous people. Uh, we read Psalm 37. You, you see there, as we delight ourselves in God, that at the end he says in verse 11, the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. That as God makes our souls fat, he often 
will bless us as well in our estates. Proverbs uh, chapter 3. The writer just, Solomon goes back and forth there in terms of uh, the wisdom we get from God's word, what that does for us, both in this life and in the life to come. My son, do not forget my teaching. Let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they'll add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. There's the discipline. So you'll find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and from the first of all your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects his son in whom he delights. And so Solomon shows us here that uh, as we discipline ourselves unto godliness, the godliness is profitable for this life. For growing in sanctification, conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, but in having those shalom lives, those lives of, of uh, God's peace, of usefulness and, and productivity. It's not that God's going to make all of us healthy, wealthy, and all of us he should make wise, but not healthy and wealthy. Uh, but the fifth commandment, the, the catechism's uh, uh, exposition of the promise uh, you live long in the land is, is very useful for what it tells us is that when it is for God's glory he, he will bless us to the degree it's for his glory and our good with each of us it will be different remember what John prayed for his friend Gaius beloved I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers as the soul prospers may you prosper in your life and the disciplines under godliness do that for you. You'll be a better grounded, happier, more productive person. Yes, we're going to have trials. Remember what Jesus said to the apostles, that in this life he'll reward you a hundredfold with trials and persecution. That's what we have in Proverbs. We need that. But God delights in blessing his children who seek him. And that is a further motivation for godliness. And then, of course, for the world to come. What's the profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? So all that we are about now, all of the nourishing of our souls by the word, all of the practice of discipline that we do, using the means of grace, practicing mortification of the flesh, putting to death the sin that's within us, using these spiritual disciplines, is not only going to be a blessing now, but above all, These are the things in Christ Jesus that God uses to bring us safely and securely into heaven. Eternal life is what God promises to those who discipline themselves. Remember that Paul was careful himself about discipline. He said, lest I, at the end of the day, have done all these things and I fall short. He was was wise, you see. He recognized that... um, he couldn't coast. Because if you coast, you go down. Seriously, if you coast, you're dying. If you keep coasting, 
you'll be dead. We must pursue these spiritual disciplines. Then he goes on to say that we must endure. Now, the connection though, uh, verse 9, is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, I think summarizes what he said now about being nourished by the word and practicing the discipline. This is his second trustworthy statement. Remember, he uses this five times in the pastoral epistles. First time was in chapter 1 as he lays out the gospel. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Now he's saying it's a trustworthy statement that if you will nourish yourself and use the disciplines that God's appointed, that you're going to prosper in this life and in the life to come. It's God's stamp of approval. It cannot fail. It's what God says that he's going to do for all of us who seek him in the ways that he has appointed. But that brings us then to this matter. The godly minister must endure. For it is for this, verse 10. And that's a very interesting phrase. For it is for this. It's kind of like a therefore. The, the for puts back. And then uh, for this is pulling together now. So therefore, what I've told you. What I've told you to do. What I've told you about nourishment. What I've told you about discipline. It is for these things that we labor and strive. Now the first word means that we work. And we are reminded once again that the Christian life then is a matter of work. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, also if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. No, we're called on uh, to labor uh, in these disciplines, to labor in the word, to labor in pointing these things out to, uh, to the brethren. And it's very important, again, that we understand, you know, the Christian life is not easy. Remember that marine recruiting poster? I didn't promise you a rose garden. All I want is a few good men. And that's what Christ says to men in the ministry. You know, it's quite appalling that uh, it's a very high percentage, over 50%, I think, the last time I looked, of men out of the seminary or out of the ministry in five years. They're not called, and they think it's a rose garden. They don't realize that this is a calling to labor, to hard work, to difficulty, into painful nights, which leads to the second word. Translated, the text that the ESV and the New American Standard use has strive. I prefer the text behind the New King James, which says to endure hardship. End of the day, it's the same thing. If you're striving, then you're fighting against the, the current. But it's endure hardship. That's what we're called to. Paul wrote of himself, for this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. He says in 2 Timothy 3 that uh, those who will live righteously will be persecuted. Now, again, the minister who is nourished by the word of God is faithful in pointing these things out. Uh, 
Any Christian who's serious about godly living is going to suffer hardship. It's going to require endurance because you'll be mocked by your family, by your friends, uh, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the world. And that's it's absolutely necessary that we understand that this calling is one of endurance. Now, that's where the world's idea of discipline breaks down. So I'm in the gym in the month of January, and there's all kinds of people I've never seen in my life. And about four to six weeks later, guess what? Most of them are gone. They had New Year's resolutions. They were going to discipline themselves, and they had no endurance. They continue to fail in the Christian life. And you've had this experience, I'm sure. You've been at a conference such as the one we just had this last week or someplace else or God's really dealt with you and you're, man, you're just all fired up. That kind of mountaintop experience. And you think, I'll never sin again. I won't have any more problems with that, that particular thing there. Oh, I'm going to read my Bible every day. And all these things. And within a matter of days, all the zeal is... You've had that experience? All the zeal has died away. You see, that's why Paul says we must labor and we must suffer hardship. We must recognize that God's called us to endurance. But notice, it's on the basis of the promise that he just gave. You see that relationship? So he gives this promise that uh, godliness is profitable for all things, that holds promise for the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. For it is for this that we labor and strive. We've got this promise. But there's no life in a promise, is there? It's good that we have the promise. It's good that we can look to the promise. But it's to look to the God of the promise. And that's what Paul does now, you see. Because we fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. The living God gives us this promise. But we look through the promise to him. Like the ruler in Cana, when Jesus said, go your way, your son is healed. Uh, he believed the promise because of the one who made the promise. And all the promises of Scripture have been given to us by the living God. Remember we talked about that phrase. This is the, the term that the Bible uses to contrast our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit against all false gods, all idols who are dead and useless and lifeless. But our God is a living God, the God of all power. The God who said, let there be light, and there was light. Let mountains come forth, and there were mountains. God has shown into our hearts the light of the gospel and granted us new life in regeneration. That is the living God. And you see, it is to him that we look now. The promise is his promise, but because he's the living God, he is the one then who will give the grace and power of the promise to us. He doesn't leave it to us to do it ourselves. He stands behind the promise. The Spirit is at work then in us to will and do God's good pleasure. And then he reminds us of God's care for us. That He calls him here the Savior of all men, especially of believers. 
Another word used here for Savior is a word often used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to talk about a, a benefactor, a, a preserver, like the judges could be saviors. Um, and Paul is, the general doctrine is that all people, to some degree or other, are sustained by God. He's the one, if anybody has any benefits, he's the one that gives them those benefits. But he loves this word especially. It can also mean namely. It takes a part out of the whole. And so he's saying here, if you take especially, that God, yes, he has this general uh, beneficence to all people, but it's especially to believers. Or you could take it as namely, that it's simply a description. Now, who, who are these people of whom God is the Savior? Namely, the believers. In either way, what he's saying is that God has a special care for his elect children, chosen in Christ, redeemed by Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who brings us into union with the triune God. And thus we look through the promise to the God behind the promise, knowing that he takes special delight in us. He is our Savior. He is our Lord and our Father. He then is the one that will give us grace to endure. He then by the Spirit is the one who will take the means that we use, if we don't use them in our own strength, but it depends upon Him, and make them absolutely effective in our lives. And so, to stick to the text, we say that this is the godly minister who now must endure. But notice then, I put verse 11 here. And some Bibles put verse 11 at the beginning of the next section. Others put it at the end of this section with which we're dealing. I believe for a number of reasons it belongs here. This is how Paul uses this two other times in 1 Timothy. In the section about widows, uh, chapter 5, 1 through 8, verse 7, prescribe these things as well so they may be above reproach. Or chapter 6, verse 2, again within the context of what he's teaching those who have believers as their masters um, and disrespectful uh, to them because their brethren must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefits are believers and beloved teach and preach these principles. So this is how Paul seems to use this at the conclusion or in the midst of particular instruction. And then to use a grammatical phrase, it's an inclusio. There's, there's bookends. So notice how it begins in pointing these things out. Now it concludes command and teach these things. They're present tense commandments so that we're to continue to command God's people to eschew false doctrine, to cling to Christ, and to practice the disciplines as they're nourished by the word of God. And we're to teach them then the truths of God by which they will be nourished and directed to the living God. And this is the ongoing activity of the minister, but also now by this commandment, keep, keep commanding and keep teaching, he now has brought the whole church. In the sense, he's moved now from the special instructions to the minister. I've simply tried to deal with you along the way, so you hopefully stay engaged. But now he brings the whole church into this, you see, by telling Timothy, all these things now belong to the people of God. And so we could change our proposition from what we have. The godly minister who's nurtured in the word and practices godliness with endurance will be equipped to nurture the congregation to 
The way to grow in the Christian faith is to be nourished by the truth of God's word and persevere in the use of spiritual discipline as we look to the living God to sanctify and keep us. The way to grow in the Christian faith is to be nourished by the truth of God's word and persevere in the use of spiritual disciplines as we look to the living God to sanctify and keep us. So at the end of the day, this is a charge to every one of us as we are in Christ Jesus. Everyone in his covenant, God is saved. Nourish yourself on his word. God is saved. Discipline yourself in the means of grace, in the spiritual disciplines. Take the Christian life seriously. Build into your life then this daily practice. Reading, pray, studying the scriptures. I'm glad to help you. You need help with reading, help with a prayer journal, help with meditation, whatever. Then come to me and tell me that you can then develop these things and grow and prosper in Christ. But now, if you have no interest in being nourished by the Word of God, no interest in growing in conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what that means, don't you? It means more than likely you're unconverted. You have no interest in Christ personally, thus you have no interest in the things of Christ. And perhaps even now the Spirit would convince you of your lost condition, of your hypocrisy, because this is all foreign to you. You can't imagine delighting in God and in His Word and reveling in the living triune God. If that's your case, then I urge you to call out to the Lord God to have mercy on you, give you a broken heart and repentance to flee to Christ. But one more thing. You notice this is all in the context of the church. So, yes, we do a lot of this on our own. But we're never on our own. We're part of a body. So how does it begin? And pointing these things out to the brethren. Then he says, command and teach these things. We as a body are going to be an encouragement to one another in the means of grace. Yes, of course, the public means of grace. And that's why we want you to take advantage of them. When we're able to go to morning services, we want you at both services. We want you at prayer meeting. If at all possible, you can be there with health or distance or whatever. Because these are the things we do corporately. And we feed off of one another then. And then as it is a corporate exercise, share with one another what God's teaching you. Talk about something you've learned in the Bible. Come to the one who's preached and say, I really, was, I really appreciate that point that you made. Or, you know, I learned something new in that sermon. Uh, send a note to someone, an email. You know, I was reading this morning the Bible and this is, this is what I saw. And become an encouragement then to one another because we're in this together as the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.